You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Go ahead and tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, God's Timing. God's Timing. This morning we're getting back into our Gospel of John series. This is where we're, we've been studying for a couple of years now, the Gospel of John, the book of John, and, and we are now at John chapter 11, and we're just starting that. And the purpose of this series is to, for us to really see the supremacy of the Gospel and the sufficiency of Christ as our Savior, and, and really to get to know our Savior more, because when times get Tough when we get into trials and, and, and tribulations in this world, in this life, it's often good, it's often great to know who it is that holds us, who holds our tomorrows, who, who is our anchor through those storms and those trials in life. And, and this gospel that we have been unpacking has been written in a specific way so that we can get to know the identity of our Savior better. In fact, this is, in, this is John's thesis for this entire book of his. In John chapter 20, verse 31, we see the purpose of why John writes his gospel. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Apostle John writes the gospel of John with specific intent to be an evangelistic piece of writing for those who read it. So that those who would read it would truly believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, as well as the Son of God. Meaning that Jesus was equal to God in nature, in power, and in authority, and of course, will. And sure enough, we've been seeing throughout our study, all the ten chapters prior to today, evidence of these truths. Evidence of everything that, that, that John is claiming about Jesus from the very beginning. John says that Christ, that Jesus, is the living Word of God, that He is the Word made flesh. He also recalls how, how the specific miracles of Jesus, seven to be exact, where it all demonstrated the divinity of Christ, whether it was turning water into wine or Jesus walking on water or healing a man born of blind. All of it was pointing to the divinity of Christ. John also records specific times in Jesus' ministry where he himself proclaims to be equal to God. If you remember that great statement, before Abraham was I am in John chapter 8 or in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, I and the Father am one. We also see Jesus expounding on salvific truths. In John chapter 3, when he has that great discourse, that conversation between Nicodemus, he talks about how no one can enter, no one can enter into the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again. And of course, he relates that whole conversation back to the promises of God in Ezekiel 36, of the promise of regeneration, where the Holy Spirit needs to replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh in order for someone to be born again. And of course, we, we've been looking at the great I am statements of Christ as well, all pointing again to that he, he, in Him alone can we find salvation. We saw I am the bread of life in John chapter 6. I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. I am the door. I am the good shepherd in John chapter 10. 
See, unlike the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who, who, who make a, an intentional effort to, to portray a complete narrative of Jesus' three-year earthly ministry, John systematically focuses in on specific moments, teachings, miracles, events, to prove that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And, and to elaborate why we need to believe in him, why salvation is only found in him. And as we begin studying chapter 11, we'll be in this chapter and chapter 12 for the next couple of weeks, even uh, leading up to Easter, um, we, we see that this, this premise and John's intent of discussing Christ's divinity and his messiahship is also present in John chapter 11. As mentioned, John specifically records seven great miracles of Jesus, not including his own resurrection. He turns water into wine in John chapter 2, displaying this power over creation. He heals the nobleman's son in chapter 4, displaying the power of his word. He heals the lame man by the pool of Bethsaida in John chapter 5 to, 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 to show his power over infirmities. He feeds the 5,000 in John chapter 6 to show his power to provide. He walks on water to demonstrate his power over nature and chaos. And we saw how he gives sight to a man that was born blind. The power of creation, uh, giving sight to someone who had no sight from the very beginning. And all of those miracles, those six miracles, culminate to this final miracle recorded in the Gospel of John, which is the resurrection of Lazarus, which is the power over death. The miracle, um, that, that, that this, this miracle of resurrecting Lazarus from the dead is all the more heightened by another great I am statement of Christ that we'll study in the next couple of weeks, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. It is once again a declaration of his divinity that only through him can one hope for resurrection, can one hope for eternal life. But before we get, all, but before we get into all of that, this morning we are looking at this, this, the setup of this great miracle and this great I am statement of Christ. And what we see in our passage this morning is a curious case, a case study on God's timing, on God's timing. Jesus is, in our, in our passage, Jesus is informed that his close friend Lazarus is sick. And instead of going straight to Bethany to heal Lazarus, it says that Jesus delays two more days before finally going to Bethany. John explicitly records Jesus' delay, the, the timing of events, even the, the, the natural confusion of his disciples as to why Jesus delayed. We'll even see the response of the family when Jesus finally arrives on scene. Both Martha and Mary ask, or rather states, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even the people who are mourning Lazarus' death question the intent of Christ, the delay of Christ. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And what we get from this setup, this opening scene in our passage, is again a case study on, God, on God's timing. God's ability to carry out his will and purposes in the confines of time in order to meet the needs of his followers. What I believe this passage is giving us insight to is how God's timing 
works. Lessons that we ought to treasure as, as we too can wait on God's timing in our lives. Because if you've ever, stu- if you've ever been stuck in the waiting zone, you know, waiting, waiting for the purposes of God in your life, for, for prayers to be answered in your life, for direction in your life, for hope has, that seemingly has been deferred, then you know that waiting can be difficult. Especially if we're like the disciples who, who don't understand why, why God is delaying. Why God doesn't just act. Why doesn't he just give us relief in our trials or, 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 or give us that, that thing that we've been praying for, that, that spouse that we have been longing for, that family that we have been desiring after? Why doesn't he just give us the freedom, the, the provision, the escape, the, the healing, the victory that we've been asking for? If you've ever questioned God's timing in your life, this passage gives us great encouragement and comfort in the waiting. So the hope for us this morning as we unpack this, is to understand and also be comforted by the truths of God's timing. To be encouraged if we find ourselves frustrated in the waiting room of life, waiting for God to act. That we would have a perspective shift, a better understanding of how God's timing actually works and ultimately how it works best for us. My hope is that if you are currently waiting on God to do something in your life, when you're, if you're here this morning and you're currently waiting on God's timing for, for something in your life, that this message would serve as fuel for you to endure a little longer, to be patient a little longer, to persevere a little longer, and wait for God's perfect timing. So let's, let's unpack our passage um, this morning. And first, before we, we get into that, uh, before we pull in some, some lessons about God's timing, I think some context to our passage is good. Our passage takes place uh, in the final weeks or even final days of Jesus' earthly ministry. From cha- between chapter 10 and chapter 11, there's a time skip. And, and John moves forward to the final days before the Passover, before the Last Supper, and of course, before the crucifixion. As always, here, when we study the Gospel of John, we, we unpack it verse by verse. So look at verse 1 with me. It says, A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with, with ointment, wiped his feet, with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now John is writing this with the assumption that his readers know this family, that this family is very much famous in the early church, and rightly so after the events of this chapter. What's interesting is that this family was already mentioned in the other Gospels, in Luke chapter 10, if you remember that story, where Jesus visits the home of Martha, and Martha was this busybody while, while Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. But in this passage of ours, John focuses more on Mary, and we'll see more of that in a bit. In verse chapter, or rather, verse three, it says, "So to the sisters, so the sisters sent to him, saying, "Lord, he whom you love is ill." But when Jesus heard it, he said, "This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it." Now, when Jesus says that this illness is, does not lead to death, he's He's technically not wrong, even though Lazarus does die. 
He's simply stating that the end result of this illness is not death in the sense that that's where the story ends. It's not where the story ends. Where the story ends is as he states in the glory of the Son of God. Then in verse 5 he says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I think this is, always, this is so interesting because it says that Jesus loved them, but he stayed a little longer. He delayed. And, 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 we'll, and we'll see how, how all of this impacts the rest of this whole scene and, and even Christ's motivations. But it's not the first time that Christ delays and then eventually goes after. If you remember in chapter 7 during the Feast of Booths, Jesus' brother invites him to go to the temple with them. And Jesus at first says no because it's not God's timing yet. And then later on, Jesus goes by himself. All of this, again, pointing to this, this scenario where Jesus is very much in line with God's timing, with the Father's timing for his uh, ministry. Look at verse 7 with me. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? The disciples were very much concerned for their safety. Uh, we, we know that the, the Pharisees, and um, they wanted Jesus dead because he was claiming, again, to be the Son of God, equal with God in nature and power and authority. And so they're concerned. They're, the disciples are questioning his motivations. And look at um, verse 9 with me. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So what Jesus is saying here is that, generally speaking, people do their, their day job, their work, during the first 12 hours of the day, during when, when, when there's daylight. And, and they stop working when it's nighttime, when it's dark, and it's a little more dangerous, and it's not safe to be working outside. What, what Jesus is ultimately saying here is that the daylight for Christ in his earthly ministry, when he is to be working, when he is to be doing the Father's will, or is, is rather when the Father what rather is within the framework of the Father's will or, or God's timing. Daylight for Christ's ministry where he would be the most safe, away from harm, is in the center of God's timing, the Father's will, which was, at this moment, the present time. Where it would be most dangerous for not just Christ, but for anyone, is when we are working outside of God's timing, out of God's will. And of course, Jesus gives this explanation. He, 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 he says very much bluntly to the disciples, verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. The disciples don't really get what he means here. That's why in verse 12 he says, the disciples said to them, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. This is good for him, right? He's resting, he's sleeping. He will recover. This is good for Lazarus. Um, sometimes I feel like the disciples are a little dense. They don't really get what Jesus is talking about from time to time. And in verse 13, Jesus has to explain even further Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then I love what Thomas says, because as we know from the other Gospels, Thomas is the realist. 
He's, he's, he, he's the realist in, among the gospel or among the disciples because he says, Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we might, that we might die with him. Thomas is saying, well, we're, if we go to Judea, we're going to get stoned anyways, so we'll just go and die with Lazarus. That's, he's kind of a pessimist here, but, but that's, uh, that's, his, that's his personality, and that's why we also see later on after the resurrection, there's a doubting nature in Thomas. So just quickly summarizing all of this, Lazarus is sick, Jesus finds out, and though he has the ability to heal Lazarus, his good friend whom it says that he actually loves, he delays for two more days, only to leave after Lazarus has already passed away. Meanwhile, the disciples are completely oblivious to all of this. I mean, right, it, it, all of that aside, talk about God's timing, right? You'd think if God is able to heal or act or do something, that he would do it right away. Especially when it says, the passage says that Jesus loved Lazarus and his family. But instead, what we see in our passage, and like what sometimes we experience in this life, is that sometimes it feels like God delays. We don't get the relief that we want right away, the help that we want right away. And I think a good question that maybe all of us have is, why is that? Why does God's timing sometimes feel, sometimes it feels delayed? Why does our timing never seem to align with God's timing? Well, in order to address this, I think we need to talk a little bit more about God's timing. We need to understand it from the perspective of who God is, and specifically his nature. Now, an underlying theological truth associated with God's timing is God's eternality. That God is eternal. God's relationship with time is not like our own. There, in theology, there are, there's two categories when it comes to the nature and attributes of God. It's, there's the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. The communicable attributes of God are the attributes of God that we can see in ourselves because we can easily reflect them. Similar to how God is love, or God gets jealous, or God gets angry, we as human beings, as created beings, can reflect that. We, we reflect those attributes of God. That's communicable attributes of God. But the incommunicable attributes of God are the attributes of God that God alone has. And part of the, the list of, of things that, 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 are, that God alone has, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, part of that list is his, eterna his eternality, him being eternal. This is a, just a, a basic definition of this. I have this on a slide. Uh, God's eternality or God being eternal. This is a, a quick definition of that. It means that God has no beginning. He has no end or a successions of moments in his own being, and he sees all time equally, vividly, yet God sees events in time and acts in time. That's what it means that God is eternal. Let's unpack this a bit. We're going to dive a little bit deeper in, in some theology this morning and um, give me some grace as we try to unpack this. First and foremost, God is not limited by time because God exists outside of time. He created time. God's eternality means that him being eternal doesn't mean that he's just very, very old, right? It doesn't, he, God being eternal doesn't mean that he's just very ancient, like an old grandpa of sorts. That's not the case. 
The psalmist, and the psalmist says that God is everlasting to everlasting, meaning that he has no beginning, he has no end, he is the Alpha and the Omega, he who was, who is, and is to come, he is Atik Yomen, calling one of his names in the Old Testament, the Ancient of Days. Time, we have to understand that time does not change God. Another attribute of, of God that's incommunicable is his immutability, meaning that he does not change. He's not affected by time. He doesn't grow wrinkles, right? Another way to look at this is that he doesn't have successive moments in time. He doesn't get older in time. He doesn't get weaker in time. He doesn't, he, he doesn't grow smarter in time. He doesn't get wiser over time like us created beings. Have, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? He doesn't get wiser or smarter. He is eternal. Time does not affect God. In addition to that, what the eternality of God implies is that God sees all of time vividly, accurately, presently. In Psalm 90, verse 4, it says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. What this means is time does not diminish God's knowledge of something. For example, how many of you here remember what you had this morning for breakfast? Some hands are up. Other people, I guess, were fasting. Praise God. Very holy people. How about what you had for breakfast yesterday? Some people put their hands up. Less and less. How about what you had for breakfast last Saturday? Okay. Some memory have some, some people's memory are great. How about what you had for breakfast last year? Oh, now you're all oh, oh, oh. well, that's impossible. Yeah, exactly. It's impossible because we are finite creatures. We're, we're, we're human. We, we, our memories fade over time. But it is not the case for God. What this passage in Psalm 90 is talking about is that even a thousand years to God is like just yesterday. A thousand years to God, two thousand years to God is like a watch in the night, which is three hours ago. God sees time. God sees history vividly and clearly without diminishing in thought or, or, or remembrance. Now, Peter adds something to that. He says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, he takes that same passage in Psalm 90. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. What Peter is getting at, again, he's affirming what the psalmist has already said, that a thousand years to God is like it just happened. It's like it was just yesterday, three hours ago. Again, that's Psalm 90. But Peter then adds, but also a day is like a thousand years to God. Meaning, to an eternal God who is outside of time, a single day in the history of humanity is like forever with him. It's forever in his mind. It's eternally in his mind. It never ceases to be present in the mind, in the consciousness of God. 
all of that to say that God sees and knows all of the past, all the present, all of the future events with equal vividness and recollection. I have a, I have a diagram here for you so you can maybe see this for those who are visual learners. Let's, let's put up that, that, that diagram we have of God being outside of time. Here we go. God's eternality. Again, he has no beginning. He has no end. Well, see, what, what that diagram depicts is that God is outside of time. If time is that, lin- that, that linear space on the bottom from creation all the way to final judgment, God is outside of that, and he sees every single moment from creation to recreation to new creation with vividness, with accuracy. He sees it all. But in addition to that, not only does God sees, not only does he see everything with vividness outside of time, we also see through scripture that God sees events in history within time, meaning he experiences it as well. He also acts in time, not simply outside of it. He's not just outside of time orchestrating events. He is within time itself, within history itself. It's why we see in in the book of Genesis that God is grieved when he looks at creation before the flood. It's why Jesus weeps in a couple of verses later in our passage when at Lazarus' death, because despite being outside of time, God is also within time, and he, ex- is, he allows himself to experience these moments in time and also act within it. We see this idea of God acting in time um, throughout Scripture. In Galatians chapter 4, verse uh, 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Meaning, When God saw it was finally fit, when the fullness of time, when everything that he had been working and leading up to the coming of the Savior, God acted. He sent forth his son, Jesus Christ. Again, God is not simply working outside of history. He's in history, experiencing it with us, acting acting in it with us. Now, why this is all important for us and we're or really the rubber meets the road for us believers and how this applies, it really means that God is never actually delayed in his timing. God is never actually delayed in his timing. A great wizard once said, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Gandalf. And similarly, God is never delayed. Because God is outside of time, He is not waiting on time to take place. He does not patiently endure the passing of time, the the passage of time before he can act. He's not wringing his hands somewhere in heaven saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I can't act right now because I have to wait. I have to wait until this passes. I need to wait until this happens. That's not happening. God is outside of time and because He sees past, present, and future events all vividly and presently. His purposes, his will, his plans in time have already been accomplished. In Isaiah chapter 46, it says this about about God's eternality. Remember this and 
Stand firm, recall to mind your transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Outside of the present time of human history, the eternal God has already accomplished his will and purposes and all his, what he intends to do in human history. It's why in the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. Because before humanity was created, before the cross happened, before creation, before time itself was in place, God in his holy mind already decided that Christ would be slain for sinners. In the mind of the eternal God, Christ had already been slain. And similarly, in the context of the eternal God, listen, the thing that you are waiting for from him has already been accomplished, has already been answered, has already been provided for, has already been given. Some of you, some of you are, are, are praying and waiting on God to, to start a family, to have kids. Well, in the mind of God, some of you already have two or three kids. Some of you probably have five kids. God already knows their names, what they will grow up to be, their personalities, their likes and dislikes, how they look like. All of that has already been accomplished in the mind of God. This is what we mean when we say that we worship a God who holds our tomorrows, because he indeed does hold our tomorrows. Though the future has yet to have happened for us who are in time, it's already happened and is, and is already present to God, who is outside of time. God's purposes, his plans, his, his, his will for your life has already been accomplished by him. Now at the same time, though God is outside of human history, as you mentioned, he's also within it. He also acts in it. He is also very much present in our time, in our, in, in our day-to-day, meaning he is really vividly aware of our current circumstances, our, our heartaches, our grievances, our despair. He is vividly more aware of our trials than really we are, what we are going through in the waiting, what has led us to our troubles. The, the, the cause, the roots of it all. He is, more, he, is, he is more aware of it. sees it more clearly than we do. And really, that should bring us hope and comfort. It's what David was trying to express in that psalm that we, learned, that we read earlier. Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You, have, you know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Then David praises God. He worships God. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Because God is present in time, vividly aware of every moment in time, it should comfort us to know that he is present in our times. That he's present in our worries, in our anxieties, in our hopelessness, in our times of discouragement and despair. 
He is present in the waiting. Now, all of that to say, this still begs sort of this question, well, why wait at all? Why wait at all? Why delay when God is, is able to act, to heal, to provide? Well, we have to understand, and this is where we'll get into our points this morning, God's timing is for God's glory. God's timing is for God's glory. Look what our passage says. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, we, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus delayed so that when he rose Lazarus from the dead, that miracle would not be misconstrued. That, 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 that miracle would not be misinterpreted in any other way other than the power of God, the divinity of Christ, being able to raise a dead man to life. Because the reality is, this resurrection of Lazarus was not the only resurrection recorded in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 7, there is the widow's son. In Luke chapter 8, there is a man named Jairus' daughter. And, and despite those being great miracles, great examples of resurrection, those, those events were very much close to the time of death. Jairus' daughter just died and, and Jesus came and brought her back to life. Same thing with the widow's son. So anyone could argue, well, maybe they weren't actually dead. Maybe they were just asleep and Jesus woke them up. But Lazarus was dead for four days. He was wrapped up. He was placed in a tomb. Many witnesses at his funeral. There is no getting around the fact that this miracle was indeed genuine, was evidence of Christ's divinity in conquering death. And we'll see this in the next couple of chapters. The Pharisees have a really big problem with this one. They can't deny it. In fact, they even want to kill Lazarus again just to get him out of the picture and say, hey, see, he's actually still dead. There's no denying that this was a work of God. All of that to say, the reason why God delays, and, and delay at least in the terms of, of our finite human perspective on time and of history, the reason why God delays so that when he acts, it is undeniably his work that we see. And, and in fact, we see this all throughout Scripture, where, 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 where God accomplishes something in the life of his people that that seemingly is, is impossible, and he even pushes it to a scenario where, where it's, it's even more impossible that it could only be him who accomplishes it. For example, in the book of Exodus, we know that story and, and the Israelites leaving Egypt. But after the, the plagues in Egypt, the, the Israelites could have just left freely. But instead, after the final plague, God says this, Exodus chapter 14, I will harden Pharaoh's heart again. And he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And what follows after that is the pillar of fire and the parting of the Red Sea. The Israelites could have just left, but God had to harden the Pharaoh's heart one more time just to reveal his glory just to show that it is undeniably by the hand of God that his people would be freed. Even the story of Joshua and the city of Jericho, 
The Israelites could have easily taken Jericho in a day. God could have just sent one plague over Jericho, similar to what he sent in, in Egypt. Instead, God has the Israelites march around for seven days and then give a mighty shout the last day. Again, undeniably a work of God. The story of Gideon versus the Midianites in Judges chapter 7. Gideon started with 30,000 soldiers to fight with. And God said, that's too many. He brought down the number to 300. Then he doesn't even use them at the end. He just gets them to to make noise again. And then God stirred up the enemy into chaos and they killed each other. Undeniably, God's work. In the story of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal, Elijah has his offering soaked in water, making it impossible for any human hands to light his offering so that when it caught on fire, when the pillar of fire came down to burn up his offering, it was undeniably God's work. The point in all of this is that God's timing brings him the most glory. You're waiting you're going, your season of going through hardship and waiting on God, it's so that the outcome, so that whatever it is that you're waiting for, when it finally arrives, when God's timing arrives, it'll be undeniably his hand in your life that brings it about. In his working of time and advance, God will take the, the route that will bring him the most glory. He will take the route that will demonstrate that it is undeniably him and him alone that we ought to worship and praise. That him alone deserves the glory and praise, the adoration from us. God's timing brings him the most glory. And, and listen, you know, you may be going through a season of waiting, as I mentioned, and you, you have to understand that maybe you're going through a season of, of constant failures, of constant lows, of constant closed doors, of suffering. But understand, when God finally acts, when His timing finally arrives, when He finally provides, when He finally opens that door, when He finally lifts you up, He does so so that all the glory and the praise would go to Him. So that all the, all the, all the adoration and thanks that you would utter would only go to Him. God's timing is for his glory. Unless we think that God is some sort of narcissist, that he's only acting for his benefit, for his praise, and you have to understand that his glory, him displaying his power, his sovereignty over time, him displaying his, his attributes of justice and love and grace and mercies is ultimately for our good. So we can conclude that God's timing is for our good. Our good. In our passage, aside from Jesus, there's a secondary character that I believe John is focusing in on. and I mentioned early. Why the story is very important. And, and, and it's not just Lazarus, though it's, it's great that Jesus brought him back to life, I'm sure. And it's not just Martha, though her faith is in fact affirmed by Christ when when Jesus finally arrives on scene. But John specifically focuses in on Mary, uh, the younger sister. Again, in our passage, it says, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. 
It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was here. In Luke, when we first meet this family, the prominent sister discussed in the Gospel of Luke was Martha. It was Martha who welcomed Jesus into her home. And from Luke, we understand that, that Mary was the younger sibling, the younger sister. So you'd think that even in John's description of this family, that Martha's name would be first. But instead, he places Mary, he places Mary first. In addition, John specifically brings up Mary anointing Jesus' feet, wiping his feet with, with her hair, which doesn't actually happen until chapter 12 of John. So from a, even from a literary perspective, John is setting up that very event, that very act of Mary wiping Jesus' feet in chapter 12 with chapter 11 explaining why Mary does what she does in the first place. And we'll see all of that unfold in the next few weeks. Uh, but what we have to understand that this chapter is really Mary's turning point as well. When she comes to believe that Jesus is, in fact, the resurrection and the life. And that is why she anoints Jesus in chapter 12. Yes, in, in God's timing, Lazarus died, but it was for the ultimate good of causing Mary to believe and anoint Jesus as the Messiah. It's for the good of Mary. And not just Mary, by the way, but also for Martha, again, her faith was affirmed. Also for the mourner, the, those who mourned Lazarus, they saw and witnessed this great miracle. But even the disciples, look at verse 14 of our passage again. It says, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Jesus was going to perform this miracle, even though he delayed, so that his disciples would once again be affirmed in their faith. So that his disciples would believe all the more. Here's, here's the point in all of this. God's timing is for our good. Our waiting on God's timing, our, our, our suffering and experiencing that we experience in the waiting is to produce in our lives not just God's glory, but our ultimate good. It's also meant to serve as a testimony to others looking in on our lives that they too would Praise God and believe in Him. Listen, sometimes the good that God wants for us is in fact in the waiting. It's in the waiting that God teaches us patience, endurance, perseverance, faithfulness to Him, trusting in Him. Our seasons of waiting on God's time is meant to be a season of refinement. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In our waiting, God seeks to produce for himself honor and praise and glory, and also for us, genuine faith, sincere faith in him. And unless you, for, you missed it in our passage, all of it is done in love. 
As our passage says in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. God's delay is out of love. It's not because he's indifferent to our suffering or the things that we're going through. God's delay is out of love so that he could produce in us a better character, produce in us faith and trust and perseverance so that he can work for his glory and our ultimate good, the best outcome for us. Oftentimes we don't understand God's will, but we can trust his heart. God's timing is for his glory and our good. Just as we close here this morning, maybe this morning you're in a season of waiting. and Maybe you don't see the end of it. Maybe you've been waiting for a long time, suffering through things, persevering through things, asking for things, but things that have not come. My prayer for you this morning, brothers and sisters, is to take heart. Know that God is not delayed. In his eternality, in his master over time, he has already accomplished his purpose, his will, his plans for you. Take comfort in knowing that in waiting, God is bringing about his glory through your life. That he indeed holds your tomorrows. Trust in God's perfect timing. The same timing that that gave us Christ when we were still sinners. The same timing that saved us when we were still lost in the depravity of our sin. Even when our failings of the past, present, and future was so vividly present to God. This is a mind-boggling thing to me as I was studying our, our sermon this morning. Throughout this past week, it's this idea that All past and present and future is vividly present in the mind of God and the consciousness of God. That includes our failings, our sin. He is vividly aware of all the times that we failed him. Yet the Bible says that he, because of Christ, what he did on the cross, God chooses not to remember them. God looks to the cross instead in the finished work of Jesus Christ rather than to our sin. All that so that we would be forgiven and justified. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us, you, me, the kindly neighbor next door. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift, though the redemption, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. I love that word propitiation. It's an ancient word describing an offering, an atoning sacrifice to appease the wrath of a God. And Jesus was put forward as a propitiation, meaning that His blood, His sacrifice was put forward, was brought to God so that instead of God seeing vividly our past sins, our present sins, our future sins, 
God instead looks upon the sacrifice of Christ. Puts, for, puts Jesus as a propitiate, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just as we close here, if, if you have yet to put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, if, if you have yet to repent of your disobedience and your rebellion against a holy God, the invitation for you this morning is to get right with God. God has made a way so that regardless of what sin you have done in the past, regardless of what sin you will do in the future, forgiveness is readily available through Jesus Christ. I pray that you would trust in God's timing today, brothers and sisters. I pray that if you are in a season of waiting on God's timing, that you would have hope that the eternal God has already declared from the beginning and end things that have not yet transpired. Trust in God's timing. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.